Due to a technical glitch, the first five or six minutes of this sermon were lost. Of which $125 billion is profit. Uh, there you go. And they control the way Americans particularly think and respond and they control, therefore, what uh, places like Kmart and Coles and things sell uh, in our country. They, they dominate life and they make us think what we think and want what we want and things. They're this em- massive empire. The corporations own governments. They control what happens and what decisions are made. Impossibly large, the, the magnates and the oil barons rule the world. And it, it seems unthinkable that they could ever be shaken. Babylonia was such an empire, impossibly big, it stretched across the world and it seemed no way it would ever end. It was run by a guy called King Nebuchadnezzar II uh, and by the time of Daniel, around 580 BC, he ruled the known world. He, he, his army went out and just slaughtered everyone and took everything. And including Israel, God's nation, which he had had sacked and burned to the ground. He'd ordered most of the people killed, millions of people killed. And 7,000, 7,000 people from Israel he had taken as prisoners of war, as captives, back to his capital city, Babylon, a city of wealth and splendour. Nebuchadnezzar ruled supreme and nothing and no one could resist him. And we see very quickly in Daniel chapter 2 how much that power had gone to his head. And it all starts with this troubled night's sleep that we just read about. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the world, had nightmares. And he's losing sleep over them. And one particular dream has him completely rattled. He's so disturbed, so upset by it, so despairing of what it might mean that he's going to thread the lies of all his advisors and wise men to find out what it means. And so, verse 1, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and then we'll interpret it. And so here are all of the the learned men, the diviners, the soothsayers of they, the the first magi as it happens to be, uh, the purveyors of secret um, arts and wisdom, the kind of people that would turn up at you know, one of those new age festivals in town, you know, the festival of minds, body, spirit and those kind of things. And, and they're all gathered around and the king thinks these are the wise guys. These people actually know what they're talking about. Astrology's real and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and they are glad to come and help the king in his dilemma. But their glee soon turns to horror when they realise what he's really after. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and then interpret it, I'll have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and then you explain it, you'll receive from me gifts and rewards and a great honour. So tell me the dream and then interpret it for me. That's ridiculous, isn't it? That's impossible. How how could anyone know what he dreamed? Let's let's do a test now. I might have had a dream last night. I'm not telling you if I did or didn't. Who can tell me what it is or what it was? Anyone? Hey? Let's just say I did. What was it? Huh? Anyone? 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 I'm going to kill you all if no one can tell me rightly. And so if you give me the wrong answer, you're all dead. Uh, (laughs) It is. That's right. Uh, It's just a ridiculous thing to 
uh, order, isn't it? Uh, tell me not only what my nightmare means, but tell me what it was. And if you don't, I'll have you all killed and your families made destitute and your whole extended family's lives ruined. How are they supposed to do that? It's a bit like playing Who Wants to Be a Millionaire or Hot Seat or whatever it's called now with Eddie McGuire. And he, and he says, for $1 million, you have to tell me what the question is and then tell me what the four answers are and tell me which one's right. And uh, you'll win a million bucks. It's going to be great. But you get it wrong and I'm going to kill you now. <laughs> like just You wouldn't want to go on that show, would you? Um, there's no way you could do it. And... And you wonder why why has the king made it so difficult for them? It's outrageous. What? Now, it could be that he's forgotten the particulars of the dream. He really doesn't remember. He just remembers the same kind of things been happening night after night. And he recalls the terror of it, And but he can't quite imagine it. So he's saying, you tell me what it was that's frightening me so much. That's, that's um, John Calvin's take on it, a very famous uh, Bible commentator. Uh, from a few years ago, uh, 1500s. Uh, no, maybe, I, I don't know. It could be that he's angry because, remember chapter 1, four young Jewish boys who he's taken as prisoners of war uh, have proven ten times better and smarter and wiser than any of his advisors. And so maybe this is, I prove your worth, prove that you're better than these jokers over here uh, or I'll have you killed. It's a final test. Or it could be that deep down he knows that they're really liars and deceivers and that their magic arts are just masking greed and it's all just a load of rubbish. He seems to say that in verse 9. If you do not tell me the dream, there's just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping your situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I'll know that you can interpret it for me. Maybe he's a bit suspicious of the new age and thinks, Maybe astrology doesn't really deliver. Let's find out. But whatever the case, when, when you hold absolute power in your hands, you can make whatever demands you like. That's the way it is with power. Uh, you can you make other people jump to your commands. You say jump, yeah, and they say how high. He, he demands the impossible and you need to be able to do it. And the magicians and the enchanters know it's impossible and beg though they will for mercy, they conclude in the wisest words that they've ever passed from their lips. Verse 10. Have a look at it. The astrologers answered the king, there is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they do not live among men. Only someone greater than this world, someone from outside, someone who could know what you know petty humans go on in their minds, what they think of and what they dream. Only the gods could do what you ask. And that's a problem because our gods really don't want anything to do with us. Uh, they don't live among people. In fact, if you go and do some Googling, you'll find out that the Babylonian mythology and their gods, they actually hate humans. They despise humans. Humans are accidental creations. They're wars and jealousies and love affairs and so on. And the people are just pawns that you push around in order to stab this god in the back and have that one killed and so on. And so we hate people and we don't want anything to do with them. That's Imagine worshipping those gods. They don't hang out here, they don't take our calls 
and I take it they're saying that our gods will not, they do not, they cannot speak to us. We cannot ask them for help and they will not give an answer. But given that only the gods could reveal such a mystery, their doom is pronounced. And the doom is pronounced not just on those who were there at the time, but the destinies is passed on on all sorts of people who weren't there. All of the wise men, all the astrologers, all the magicians of the land, including our heroes, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who we met last week in chapter 1, who uh, were the sons of Jewish nobility. They'd been enslaved and captured and carried off after the sacking of Jerusalem and they'd been conscripted into the king's service and they'd been forced to learn all those dark arts of magic and astrology and all the things that the Babylonian uh, wise men were forced to learn. They had to endure it, whether they liked it or not, all the dark arts of Babylon. And so they are lumped in with the wise men and astrologers who all must die. And so the decree, verse 13, was issued to put the wise men to death and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to have them put to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact and he asked the king's officer, why Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? And Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. Now, if you put yourself in his position, what would you do? he go, you have been told that you have been ordered to be executed then and there for something that's impossible, something you weren't even there for. What do you do? Uh, do you look for the nearest window and you know make a bolt for it? I mean, try and flee. The, the armed guard is there for your head. And don't forget, he's a prisoner. He's working in the palace as a slave, but he, he's presumably manacled up or at least locked in his room at night. Uh, do you just break down and cry, collapse, and grab the guard's ankles and start you know blubbering? Please don't do it. Please don't. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what you would do. I'd probably do something like that. Um, What does Daniel do? Well, at this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. And then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he (coughs) and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And so instead of sitting there thinking, this is so unfair. That's not right. I wasn't there. It was impossible anyway. He doesn't whinge about it. He doesn't, um, he doesn't complain. He knows the king's going to make good on his threat, so whinging's not going to do any good. So what does he do? He prays. He prays. He asks God for help because he trusts that God, God is God. God's in control. He put his life in God's hands because he knows, like the astrologers, the magicians and wise men, that it's going to take mercy from God to get out of the situation. But unlike the astrologers, magicians and wise men, he's actually going to ask for that help from God. They cannot or they will not pray to their gods because they will not answer. And they can't answer because they're fakes. And it's true of all false gods. They cannot answer because they are lies. But Daniel trusts in the true and living God, absolutely trusts him. We saw how much he trusts him last week. He took his life in his own hands when he made that resolution to defy the king in chapter 1 and not eat the king's food, to be godly in his conduct. 
And he absolutely trusts God now to be the one who does speak and who can answer and who may indeed grant mercy. And so he turns to God for help. See, nothing, nothing is beyond the capability of God to do. And we've got to know that and understand that. That has to be the first port of call for us when we enter in a dilemma. Now, what should we do? You think about our Christian brothers and sisters uh, who are fleeing for their lives and many are being killed over in the Middle East, facing possible extermination, facing terrible conditions as they flee, as hundreds of thousands pour into Baghdad, uh, which cannot house them and which itself will be under threat very soon. What do you what do you do for them? We're supposed to love our Christian brother. What can we do? Well, whatever else we can do, we can pray. And that's that's what we should do first and foremost. Pray. Prayer has to come first because in the end, the only one who could actually entirely save the situation is God. No one else is going to aid might help. You know, arms drops and things. Well, are they wise? I don't know. But God can actually save the situation. Daniel gets on his knees and he asks God for what is humanly impossible. And an answer comes from God, an impossible answer to this impossible demand. Uh, During the night, verse 9, during the night the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Now what do you do when you pray for something that you don't really think is going to happen, but you want it to happen, and it does happen. What do you do then? Uh, What a lot of people do is talk about the power of prayer and they end up praising themselves for praying rather than praising the God who granted whatever it was. Uh, They forget that God was the one who saved the day. I remember being on beach mission a few years ago in a country town and we visited a couple of months before just to talk to the churches and things about what was going on what are the issues you know that you're facing in church around here? And one church, um, uh, they said, "Oh, there's this awful, awful guy in the congregation. Uh, we hate his guts, uh, and we want him to go. Uh, and he's causing all sorts of division." Uh, turn up two months later, say, "Oh, yeah, well, how's, how's things going with this situation?" Ah, oh, oh, it's, it's good. We prayed him out of town, uh, and I'm thinking. What the heck does that mean? Were they sitting in church going, please don't let Jason Craig come back to church? <laughs> Is that, um, they prayed him out of town. It was all about them, you know, kind of this awful situation. It was totally unloving and ridiculous. But anyway, was, a lot of people... You know, praise themselves for achieving whatever it is. We've got to praise God, and that's what Daniel does. Daniel got his answer, and then he praised the God of heaven. He said, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. God reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. And it's quite a beautiful prayer. It's a spectacular prayer. Uh, And it's, it's really the heart of the passage. 
This little prayer just kind of sandwiched between the problem and the solution. That God is the one who can do stuff because God is the one that rules the universe. Uh, He acknowledges God's control over all things. He's praising God. He's the one who gives wisdom. He's the one that puts kings in their place and he's the one who takes them away. installs them and deposes them. He can bring kingdoms. He can destroy kingdoms. He changes times and seasons. He reveals mysteries. And so in the end, he's not just a powerful, thumping, huge God who can do whatever he wants, but he cares. And he wants to be involved. He's not like the Babylonian gods who are no gods at all, who do not live with men and do not care about people. And, and so he intimately cares. And so that's a God that's worth praying to, right? One who does control everything and one who loves you and wants to be involved and can give the answer to these things because he loves his people. And that just demonstrates why Daniel prayed to start with. And Daniel didn't think he was invoking some magical charm that would give him a magical answer. It was not like Buddhist prayer, which isn't prayer at all because they don't believe there's a God out there at all. It's just you, you, you send your wishes up to the universe and so you make a prayer wheel and you write your prayer on of what you wish would happen and you spin it as fast as you can on your prayer wheel and if it goes around a million times or you know, two million times, maybe the universe will grant it. It wasn't like Buddhist, I mean, so Muslim prayer, which isn't prayer at all. I mean, they they pray five times a day, and you think that's really, really godly and pious. So they're not praying at all because they're not asking Allah for anything. What Muslim prayer is about is bowing down, facing Mecca, and reciting to Allah Allah's words in the Quran. It's proving that you love Him and adore Him so much that you took care to learn chapter one of your Bible. And, or your Quran, and you uh, you read it back to God. That, that's not prayer. It's religious devotion, but they're not asking for anything. The tour guide at the uh, mosque at um, at Auburn saw uh, went on the tour the other day for the second time, and he said it's really ungodly to ask for your personal concerns. That's just selfish, and God will never grant it if you pray for your sorto. Why would he want to grant you that? You selfish human. You don't ask for yourself. You glorify Allah. So they're not praying. Here is Daniel expressing his trust in the one who runs the world and who cares about us and who's prepared to give answers. The appropriate response to understanding God's absolute sovereignty over all things is to pray to him. Many people say if God rules, then don't pray because he's worked it all out. Why, you know, if he's sovereign, he's sovereign, and so you praying is going to do nothing. Well, that's ridiculous. If God rules, ask for his help because he's the only one who can do anything in the end. So what's the answer to the dilemma? What was Nebuchadnezzar's nightmare? Well, 24, then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and he said to him, Don't do it. Don't execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king. I'll interpret his dream for him. Ariok took Daniel to the king at once and said, I found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, who was also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No, wise man. Enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. 
And that God has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed of these. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come and the revealer of mystery showed you what is going to happen. Here, king, God has shown you the future history of the world unfolding in your nightmare. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and you may understand what went through your minds. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. And awesome doesn't just mean, yeah, cool man. Awesome in the Bible is fear-inspiring. You go, when you see it, that's what awesome is. God is awesome. You fall in fear before him because he is thumping huge. This statue is awesome. You are... It's, I imagine it's kind of like the uh, the statues of the kings on the Anduin River in the Lord of the Rings as they're going down and these these towering monuments to the kings of old there and they look up and they're like, ooh, and it's a really quiet moment in uh, the first of the Lord of the Rings movies. This awesome statue, the head of the statue was made of pure gold. Its chest and its arms are of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay, and it smashed them. You think that the statue was fearsome? There is something that can destroy it. And the rock came and it struck it and smashed it. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. You know, just dust. just And the wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and it filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now there's a little sketch of the statue uh, in the handout, I hope you got it in the bulletin as you came in. It is anywhere from, uh, but it's, it's not awesome at all. <laughs> um, you're not looking at that thinking, oh, I'm scared. You know, but just to get the idea, here is the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's nightmares. Giant, awe-inspiring, head of gold, silver chest and arms, bronze stomach, iron legs, feet of clay and iron, all destroy, destroyed by a rock which becomes a mountain. What does it all mean? What the, what the heck is all that about? Well, Daniel explains. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler of them all. You are the head of gold. What a thing to say to the pagan king who runs the world. Yeah, you might be the head of it and you might be shiny and golden and fearsome and so on, but you know what? God put you where you are. You didn't make yourself. God made you. God is the one who bestows dominion and might and power. And what is more, O king, he's going to take it away from you. Verse 39, after you another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the entire earth. 
Finally, there'll be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. As iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all of the others. Just as you saw the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. So it's a foretelling of the kingdoms that are coming. God is going to give the same control of the world to other nations, to the Persians, and they're going to turn up halfway through this book and Nebuchadnezzar and his dynasty will be destroyed overnight by the Persians, to the Greeks who will come after them and they they flogged them through Alexander the Great, the son of Philip of Macedon, who went and conquered everything and got to the other side of India and went, oh, is that it, and turned back. But then he died on the way home. And then the Romans. We know that they were the nations that followed the superpowers who ruled the world. They, they all swallowed up the one before them. You know, Babylon will fall, they will have had their day, and they will all have had their day. And all of them are going to fall, one after another. God installs them, God removes them all. And none of them are going to compare to the real thing that's coming after that because in the end God is going to set up a kingdom that will never end. Have a look, verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all of those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will endure. It itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. (coughs) God is going to establish another kingdom that will never end, a kingdom different to all the other kingdoms. They will each be great. They'll each be feared. They'll each run the world, but none of them are going to last. The new kingdom which is coming is going to be one that will last forever. It will not come in succession like the rest. And it won't make up just another part of the statue, you know, whatever's underneath the feet. Uh, it, it will come from outside and it will, it will destroy all human kingdoms. Now, we know, don't we, which kingdom that is and who is its king. Who is the king? That's Jesus, right? Because we live after the fulfilment of this dream. This is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He is the rock. He is God's king and his kingdom has been established in the time of the Romans, that fourth empire. And day by day his kingdom grows and it's growing into an enormous mountain. And the reason that Jesus' kingdom is not like the others is because it's not of this earth, is it? Now, Jesus is the king from heaven. He, the magicians think that the gods do not live among men. Well, the true and living God has dwelt among men. We're coming up to Christmas where we remember that that is the case, that God came. He was born miraculously, demonstrated his divine power and his miracles and, and he gloriously conquered the real enemies we face of sin and death and the devil by his triumph on the cross and in his resurrection as the victor. And just as the king is not from earth, his kingdom does not grow by conquest 
or by might of arms or by force of will or by manipulation of stock markets or by forcing the masses um, to economic and social dependency or by hostile takeover bids as the empires of this world do, be they nations or companies. You know, we cannot make Australia Christian by, if we did our own version of ISIS and rose up and got guns and said, everyone become Christians now, would that make Australia a Christian nation if they all said, oh, okay, let's do that? wouldn't be Christian at all. It would just be fear, wouldn't it? They, they wouldn't care any more about God or Jesus or anything like that. It's, it's when Christianity is not another empire like that. No, God's kingdom grows as the news of Jesus' victory on the cross is shared by each believer with their neighbour and their friend and their family and as people come to put their trust in him and find new life, they find forgiveness for their sins and they put their lives in the hands of the king. That's how God's kingdom grows. And one day it's going to be shown in all of its glory on the day our king returns and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he will be known for who he truly is. He will be the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords, a title which Nebuchadnezzar, as great as he was, could any ever have temporarily. Jesus owns it forever. What does King Nebuchadnezzar do when he hears this news? You've just been told by one of your slaves that you're not in charge, that God put you here and God is going to take it all away from you. You know what I would do if I was Nebuchadnezzar? Because I'm sinful. I'd have him put to death on the spot. Insolent. You might have thought he'd do something to Daniel right there because he has spoken the word of doom on Nebuchadnezzar. But what does he do? It's astonishing. 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and he paid him honour and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. I mean, he's, he's, he's completely rejecting his own gods at that point. He'd renamed Daniel and his mates after his own gods, you remember from last week. And he placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon, placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. And he says, surely Israel's God, your God, is, is God. He is the God of God. He's the Lord of Lords. He reveals Mr. Demichinezer who ruled the world and could order the death of people for failing to complete impossible tasks. This great one acknowledges that God, the God of Israel is in control. It's a miracle, isn't it? I mean, one miracle in revealing the answer to his impossible demand. Another in having this pagan king who is, you know, this horrible dictator come to confess the lordship of God. It's a miracle, but it doesn't last for very long, as we'll see in the next few weeks. But do you recognise this truth that Nebuchadnezzar temporarily at least came to recognise that God really does rule? God really is in charge. He's not mucking around. He's not you know, pushed about by the affairs of this world and 
You know, he's some there going, oh, I wish I could do something about it, but I can't. God really is in control. There is nothing wiser than falling on your face before Jesus Christ and acknowledging that he wins, that he's the king. And the impact of that acknowledgement is going to express itself in lots of different ways. It'll express itself in, in the willingness to pray. How's your prayer life going? Yeah, when you're in trouble, do you go to prayer as the first thing you do? Do you uh, commit your ways and life and future into God's hand as just a, a regular course of action, saying, you know what, God, you're the one who determines the, the times and places and the footsteps of people, and my life's in your hands. Do with me as you will. Is that your prayer? It'll express itself in who or what you choose to fear. The kings and the kingdoms and the empires of this world do not rule. They may think they do. They may act as if they do. They may threaten your life. They may threaten your security. They may threaten to withhold the good favour from you. But you don't have to worry about the things of this world as if this is all there is. God's kingdom is the kingdom that matters because God is the king. ISIS may own big guns and China may own most of Australia. And the US and the big business may threaten and coerce, but they are all only temporary empires and they will all come undone. It will express itself in who you choose to trust and what you rely upon for life, be it your money or your career or your family or kinds of things. Who are you going to choose to trust above all things? I'd trust the one who runs it all. It'll express itself in our confidence that God's king is going to return, be it tomorrow or next week or next century or next millennium. And, and so we who are his, we, what do we do? We wait patiently for that coming and we pray that it will come soon. That's what he told us to pray. Your kingdom come. And we work for his kingdom by holding out the word of life, the word which offers freedom and pardon, the word of the gospel which, which brings people from death to life. It brings them from hell into heaven. It brings them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son he loves, the kingdom of Jesus Christ who is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. So it's all too easy to acknowledge theoretically that God's in control but then live as if he's not, as it will turn out with Nebuchadnezzar. Let that not be the case with us. Let's devote our ways and our future and our lives to our King and his service. Father, we thank you that you do rule this world, that though it looks like things are out of control from time to time in our lives and in the affairs of nations, you know what you're doing, though we don't often understand. Father, we do pray for mercy on your people in the Middle East. Father, please protect them. Please, we pray for an astonishing change of heart from the people of ISIS that they might come to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. We pray for the persecutors and the persecuted. Father, we can't see any solution to the mess, but we know you are the God who does the impossible. For you did the impossible in our lives. You turned us from rebels who hated you into friends of yours who you've saved and loved by your mercy. And so we pray that you will grant that mercy in that region of the world, in our own community, that our friends and neighbours and families and those we love and care about, the strangers we come across, the people moving into our community from different nations, they might come to know the one who is the king 
and the Lord of Lords, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has given everything that they might have life and be his and be forgiven. We thank you for that astonishing mercy and pray that many might come into his kingdom and that we might be part of that as we share the good news which saved us with others around us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.